Hey, Marshall Latham here, letting you know that I wanted to get this episode to you before Halloween, not because this Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold that Rich and I talk about in this episode has anything really to do with Halloween, but I, I just uploaded to the Patreon feed an episode about field excursions where we talk about The Gate, a horror movie from 1987. And it's kind of a fun throwback movie uh, to talk about and had some really interesting uh, special effects. And so if you'd like to go over to Patreon and catch that episode while you're in the Halloween frame of mind, head on over to patreon.com slash journey into. And for just jumping in at $1 a month, you'll be able to listen to that episode right away. Uh, But for right now, let's uh, proceed to the adventure with Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold. Welcome, everyone, one and all, to a rare episode of the <laughs> Outfield Excursions here on the Journey Into podcast. You might have thought we pod faded and we're never going to do this again, but uh, we are back uh, talking about a new movie, and I, it's good to be back. <laughs> uh, do you still wait? To release the episodes to the public until there's a new one for the Patreon? I do. So (laughs) people have been waiting a long time. (laughs) I think the last one we did was the uh, Valerian. Oh my gosh. Well, that was just last summer, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So about a year ago. And we nearly did one a few months back, like in January or February. And we I, did. I can't yeah. remember what happened on that, except for I blame someone who's not me. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I mean, we were gonna because uh, it was the not the Black Cat. What was it? Anyway, it was an Edgar Allan Poe anthology show that had the Black Cat adaptation in it with Peter Lorre, right? Yeah, and I I watched the first two parts of it. And then I meant to get back to it, and I never did. And then we were going to record, and then uh, it was off of the service. I was going to have to pay for it, which wouldn't have been that much money. But And then, yeah, by the time we talked about it again, it had been a month or so since we'd seen it, and we'd have to watch it again to make it worth it to remember anything. So, And I hadn't finished the whole thing. So, See, you never told me that it was off the service. I and that's why we never finished it. I I just thought, oh, okay, Marshall's lost interest. He made me watch this, and now he's <laughs> off playing with his friends. <laughs> so yeah, I, I I didn't realize that. But every once in a while, I will send you a, a title and say, hey, I'd like to watch this. So far, we haven't. Yeah, I've been off off my game this year, I guess. Well, something you used to do was you would have like a list of five movie titles and you'd put it on your Patreon and say, what should we watch next? And whatever got the most votes we would watch. I can't remember. I don't think we've done it that way for a long, long time. It's just been whatever we can both agree on. Yeah. I think the last one we did that on was a, did a bunch of different 2014 movies. 
And uh, that's when we watched The Giver. So, oh, well, The Giver wasn't long ago. I think that was just last year. Yeah, yeah. So maybe maybe to kickstart us, I'll have to uh, to get another poll up there on Patreon and see what people want us to talk about. Okay, well, that would be that would be good. Uh, but but yeah, this is a little aside. You can cut this bit out so that it doesn't embarrass our listeners. But did we ever see Pompeii? No, we didn't. That was on the list, on the poll, but we never did see it because because we ended up watching The Giver instead. Okay, because so. I I feel like I saw it, but I I looked at like the synopsis and who was in it, and I was like, no. No, I never did. <laughs> yeah, that could be in the running again. So. Well, it it should be. Yeah, let's put it on the list. So, wh- yeah, how did we sure. uh, end up deciding on this one? On on, boy, this has a title. It's Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold. That's up there with titles that have two or three more words than they need. Definitely, yeah. Because the last movie. This is a sequel to King Solomon's Mines, which is a pretty short title. But uh, of course, you know we're we're we were doing that one as a as an Indiana Jones ripoff. Then you were pretty excited about watching the sequel, and I was like, I don't know that that King Solomon's Mine kind of did me in. <laughs> um. <laughs> okay, but what but, changed uh, your mind? Well, I guess it was the the Dial of Destiny that came out this year, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And I thought we should we need to get back to doing movies, and I'll, I'll go ahead and watch that Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold movie, and we can do an episode about that to tie it into Indiana Jones. Okay, fair enough. But to be honest, and I guess they're they're following that you know with the title of this movie, right? The Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold is like. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom or something like that. So, Yeah, this one came out a year after King Solomon's Mines, which came out a year after Temple of Doom. But right. I felt like this was much more Temple of Doom influenced than King Solomon's Mine wa- Mines was. I do too, yeah. I, apparently they were both made at the same time, but I, I've heard conflicting reports on that, and I know that... Canon Films, which at this point we should just groan whenever we see that Canon Films produced something. But <laughs> I they, do. They had intended to make a trilogy of these. And you know that if the third one had been successful, they would have made far more than a trilogy. Uh, but the first movie made 15 million in the US, and the sequel, this one, only made three. So. Yeah, they never went off and made a third one. I guess this was a giant bomb because uh, both films had – oh, wait. The first film had a $12 million budget and the second one had a $13 million budget. And so – Oh, wow. So, yeah, they lost hard on this one. Yeah. It's interesting though. I looked up the tomato meter scores and <laughs> King Solomon's Mind had an 8%. I looked at that too, and I thought that can't be right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the first one got an eight, and what did the second one get? Forty uh, percent. See, how does that happen? So, I don't know, but to be honest, I agree with the tomato meter. I enjoyed this movie 
a lot more than I did King Solomon's Mines. And that might be because I was I was in on it. I was like, okay, I know what I'm getting into. I know what this movie's going to be. But I th- I think the plot was better and the the pacing was better and and uh the characters were better, I thought, but but still that's such a huge improvement. I'll bet Undiscovered Country doesn't have that much of an improvement over Final Frontier. You know what I mean? Where where you get a sequel in a series or you know, an entry in the series that's bad and then you get one that's good. Well, Rish, let's take a look at the stats and find out, shall we? <laughs> Whoa. It's my future conscience. Uh, hey, future conscience, it's uh, great to see you, but I thought, you know, being my conscience and all, that you would only appear to me. I mean, like, just me. Well, today I am feeling non-exclusive. Okay, but <laughs> I don't know if Rish here feels comfortable having you come in and challenge his assumptions. Let's ask him, Rish. Do you mind if I provide the data on your speculation about the Star Trek movies? No, that would be great. Yeah, I'd be honored. Very well. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier has a 21% score on Rotten Tomatoes. Meanwhile, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country has an 83% score on Rotten Tomatoes. That makes for a 62% increase in the rating between movies. However, there was only a 32% increase between the two Alan Quatermain films. Wow, I didn't expect that. Oh, well, thanks, Miss Conscience, ma'am. Uh, maybe I'm not so happy to have you challenge my assumptions after all. <laughs> if you weren't so pretty, I might even be offended. Now, now, don't make me blush. Hey, hey, what about the audience scores? Can you check those? Sorry, I don't have enough time for that. Have fun boys. Huh. Well, that was weird. Well, um, sorry for the interruption, everybody. Anyhow, um, I'm glad that you liked it, because it'll probably mean more episodes of this show. But I, I found it really difficult to like. I, And I did tell you right before we started recording that I fell asleep while it was playing and then had to watch it again the next day. Because, uh, w- now, we watched it on Tubi. Which yes. uh, I I think we have agreed is the worst of the streaming services, and it has commercials, <laughs> and and sometimes they're at pivotal moments where you're just like what a commercial now, uh, but it's just not it's not one commercials it's like bunches of commercials, and so I had to watch them again yes. because the next day it just started the movie over. And I was watching it during my lunch break. Oh. I watched like 15, 20 minutes of it. And then that night I, I, I queued it up to finish and I had to start again from the beginning. <laughs> so you won by just watching it in one sitting. <laughs> it wouldn't let you fast forward or anything. Huh? No, no, no. It did let me fast forward. But they punish you when you fast forward by when you when you push play, suddenly the commercials all start. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's the same thing. I think this was also available on Pluto TV, which we've used before. And I think but it's pretty much the same deal. It's it's, it's a free app with ads. So Oh, well, I should try Pluto sometime. Uh, yeah, yeah, if we're going to start doing this again, that would be fun to uh, to watch things that 
that are free. <laughs> uh, so d- apparently some time has passed between the first and second movie because Alan Quartermain, who's played by Richard Chamberlain, and Jesse Houston, I had to look it up, uh, who's played by Sharon Stone, are engaged. And she's like pushing him to go to America so they can get married. Uh, they're in Africa right now. They're they're. I get the feeling that they've stayed in Africa since the first movie. Yeah, that's the feeling I got as well. And he's he's not comfortable with the idea of, of I don't think he's I think he's fine with getting married even though he he says a couple times, "Well, why do we even need to get married?" But he just doesn't like the pomp and circumstance and getting dressed up and all that kind of stuff. Going to America, meeting her family, all that kind of stuff. He's not into that. Anyhow, uh, the movie starts and uh, there's a guy and I, he looked so much like Richard Chamberlain, so much like like Alan Quartermain that I thought that it was just like his double. And it's like, oh, Chamberlain wasn't available for this scene. Anyway, he's being pursued by these natives that have these masks on that look like pillowcases. It looks like the town that dreaded sundown or Friday the 13th Part 2, <laughs> that kind of thing. Except for they're naked, uh, except for loincloths, and they, they have spears. Anyway, they're, they're chasing this guy, and he stumbles upon Quartermain's estate, right? Yep. And he's, he's a friend, right? A friend of, of Quartermain's or a, a friend of his brother. Maybe you should step in. I'm, <laughs> I was sleepy. So he narrowly escaped several attempts by these uh, robed natives or whatever to survive. And he finally gets to Quartermain, but he's on death's door. He's got a fever and everything. And Quartermain sees these natives and, and he chases after them, but they disappear. He does have an encounter with one of them and he fights them. And I was actually thinking that the fight scene was pretty good. He didn't have his gun because... And he was dressed up in this suit that Jesse had bought for him. <laughs> and he takes off the coat and uses that kind of to help him. again Because they had these, like, uh, ceremonial blades, these knives, or, you know, very long knives. And uh, so he has to fight this guy, and eventually he's able to, to throw him off or whatever. And, and he brings the knife back, and he is able to talk to his friend, and his friend tells him, First, he's kind of crazy, you know, raving and everything about the the streets of gold and and all this gold and stuff. But then he does tell him that you know he was with his brother, and I don't know if you were to pick a name for the brother of Alan Quartermain, would you have ever picked Robeson <laughs> as mm. Alan's brother? I don't know. Alan just seems like a nice you know common name, but Robeson seems. Seems more sophisticated, but anyway, yeah. His his so his brother was on this quest or whatever for this lost city of gold, and he asks him, you know, is my brother alive? Where is my brother? And I don't think he gets a good answer for it. And they all go to bed, but then these natives come back and sneak in the house. I don't know why he wasn't guarding the, his friend in the in the tent, but. Or I guess they were in a house, but they and they come in and they killed uh, him, and took their or took their knife back, I think. And then, of course, the the servant lady comes in and she starts screaming, and 
Quartermain comes in and, and realizes that this guy's dead now. And he did tell him about they got some information from this guy named Swama or Swarma. <laughs> what was his name? Yeah, it was Swarma. It was like uh, I, I kept thinking of the end of the Avengers. Yeah, me too. I know it's not yeah. Swarma, but it's very, very close. <laughs> yeah. And so, and, and a city, I think he gave him a name of a city. And so Quartermain decides, you know, he's got to go save his brother. Of course, Jesse's all upset because she, they were leaving for America and she was all dressed up and ready to go. And he's like, I'm sorry, I can't. They have a, a little heartfelt argument. And uh, my wife was watching this with me. And I hadn't prepared her, you know, hey, this is a canon film, you know, the, the quality's not very good, the acting, you know, watch out for that. And, and so during this this love scene or whatever, she, she's kind of like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> this is terrible dialogue. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you. Watermaking, we have planned this trip for six months. My Parents have planned it. They've sent wedding invitations. We've arranged catering. We're talking about my brother, and you're worried about hors d'oeuvres? Now, that's not fair. Well, when do we think about us? We're talking about my brother and my best friends. What am I? Look, they, they've been gone so long, and... And after what's happened here, it's it's dangerous and it's crazy. And it's what I've got to do. Fine. And going to America is what I have to do. And I don't know, Sharon Stone is still terrible in this movie. Was she really bad in the first movie? I thought so, yeah. Probably worse in the first movie. But I was at, I was kind of enjoying this one. I thought, oh, well, maybe everything's. But yeah, she's probably the worst part of it still for me. And I've well, seen her act well. I know she's a good actress, but not not in these movies. And and most of her line, well, most everybody's lines are, you can tell they're overdubbed and not very well. But <laughs> well, yeah, the, I remember Sharon Stone. Whenever she was interviewed, she'd always say, you know, I I am a genius, and I, I you know, I. I'm a Mensa candidate and and people always oh. think that I'm dumb because I'm blonde and and I look like this and I I and I so I paid attention during the movie to see if there was ever any intelligence in Jesse and there wasn't it was just like they saw Temple of Doom and said uh can you do that and you, you know scream and be in peril a lot and then be angry and fight with with Alan and and have like you know that you like him but you hate him. Can you do that? And she's like, Shh, I think so. And I, but <laughs> but she, I mean, Sharon Stone is just astoundingly good looking. But they didn't play that up ever during the movie. They never put her in like a ni- nice dress. They never have her glamorously lit. Or, lots of times she's dirty and she's you know she's dressed in you know fatigues and 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 I just I wondered why 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 they didn't like glamorize her you know and 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 show her off use the assets 
that they hired her for in this movie. It, it's just strange to me because yeah. eventually they do get to a civilized place. Uh, and, and, you know, of, of course, you know, like the, the, the people are going to say, we, we have brought you these clothes to wear and we're going to bathe you and, and, and do your hair and all this stuff. And, but they didn't do that. It was just really strange that it's like you hired Sharon Stone and then say, okay, let's, let's just put you in a, a, a nun's habit for the whole movie. <laughs> well, she did take off her clothes in the car when she decided to go back to be with Quartermain. <laughs> <laughs> she did. And yeah, that was a head scratcher to me too, because she, you know, she was, she had her, her go back to America clothes. And then she decides, no, I can't let Alan uh, go on this adventure by himself. And so she takes off her outfit and throws it on the road and then, like, tra- changes yeah. into her jungle attire. Yeah. But, yeah, just, just to, to allay any fears, this was very PG. She <laughs> she wasn't uh, nude on, on screen or anything like that. But. No, she had, like, <laughs> full body underwear. Like, yeah. Like, maybe would have been period accurate, uh, you know. Yeah. But it, it's just, again, it was a waste. Anyhow, sorry, they, uh, so, so he does go and talk to, to Swarma. And I, I was really curious what your, your thoughts on this character of Swarma was because I kept thinking, okay, is this character in here for the kids to amuse children? Because there were always like pratfalls and double takes and, and, and silliness from this character. Like, yeah. it, it was so broad, you would have thought that this was a, a silent film. Your image has haunted me, sir. In the image of your brother and the friends you seek. I could not rest easy were I to let you embark on a journey of such peril alone. When it is I who possess the legend's secret. I guess that means you want to come along. No, no, no. I don't want to come, but sir, it is a journey through legends, shrouded in mystery, which I, as your humble guide, will unravel. He has this outrageous Indian accent, and he's he's constantly dropping his facade that he's a holy man. Whenever gold is involved, he's he's proven right. to be a liar <laughs> and, uh, and 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 super greedy. And uh, I I couldn't tell, were we just meant to, like, oh, I can't wait for this guy to get killed, or were we supposed to find him charming? I don't know. Quartermain seemed to find him charming, but, yeah, he got on my nerves pretty quick. At first I thought, okay, he's fine. You know, he kind of reminded me of, like, the, the lawyer guy on Jurassic Park, you know, just kind of this Weasley guy that is in the background. But unfortunately, uh, Shwarma didn't get, or Swarma, didn't get eaten by anything, <laughs> but uh, yeah, he it it became very especially when they were going through the river and fighting the the natives along the river that said it was their territory and and he just kept like you know putting his hands together in prayer and just being like you said ridiculous and over the top silly about it and uh, yeah he he kind of wore on my nerves a little bit but not enough to. To totally take it down. 
And then at some point, and I, I, I can't remember again, I was tired at the very beginning of the movie. Uh, they run into, uh, James Earl Jones. And I can't say, remember his character's name and neither can you, but he's like this <laughs> African warrior guy with this fun, long handled axe that he'll like spin around and, and show off with. Uh, you know, he's doing an accent. But he's clearly James Earl Jones, and I, I got the feeling he's having a fun time in this role. Uh, yeah, he would have to be, because I kept thinking, how did uh, Canon Films get people to act in these movies? <laughs> like, somebody like James Earl Jones, you know? Because at this point, right, he would have been, you know, I mean, not only Darth Vader, but he was highly acclaimed elsewhere as well. So, just to, to see him do this... Well, he he was the main villain in Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. And so that's probably why they approached him is because, you know, like he has a background in this kind of movie in a way. And, and you know, I thought he comported himself pretty well. And like I said, you could tell he was having fun. Yeah. And that let us have fun because a movie like this, uh, if you take it too seriously – it becomes kind of grim and 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 no fun, like people complain about Temple of Doom. Uh, but if you take it too yeah. lightly, then we never feel like any of our characters are in danger. We, you know, the threat is not serious. And so, for example, uh, Chamberlain, Richard Chamberlain, early on, he seems to be having fun. But as the movie goes on, he becomes fairly dour, I thought, and... And he doesn't show any of of the charm that Indiana Jones has or the – I don't know. The, 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 you get the impression that, that even though Indy is in danger, that he lives for this sort of thing. And he would, would – you know, when he's a teacher with his glasses on and the suit or whatever, he's dreaming of going in caves and dodging bullets and all these things. You know what I mean? It's 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 a funny dichotomy that Indiana Jones has. Yeah, for sure. I yeah, I think Quartermain's job is adventurer. That they show early on that he's like a a crack shot with his pistol. I I felt like that was setting something up, and may, maybe it was, but I, I don't know. At the very very end, I guess when he's trying to out Macho this native dude, uh, that scene was pretty fun. That was. Uh, they, you know, it, it, they had their tongues firmly in their cheeks in that scene, uh, which I guess we'll get to later if we're even going to mention that dude. But, uh, yeah, they, uh, so, so they go on this adventure. They ask, uh, James Earl Jones's character to come with them. You're a long way from home, aren't you? I am high born, I, of the blood of a great king, a chief. I'm a wanderer. A man without a crown, with naught to save my ex. And you, Quatermain, why are you here? <laughs> I'm trying to put together a party to go into East Africa. But everybody but me is too smart to go. They live and breathe fear, not I. But the blow come quickly and the blood run red. I travel with five Ascari, over whom I hold much influence. You have your party. Huh? Quartermain. Careful there. That one's got a bloodthirst. He also has five Ascari, over whom he holds much influence. Yeah, his, na his name is uh, 
Umslopagus or something like that. Okay. Snuffleupagus. I've already <laughs> forgotten. I'm just going to keep calling him James Earl Jones. Okay. He offers to help guide. He's got these natives. Uh, what are, what were the what was the kind of of natives that they were? Do you remember? Ascari, I think, was the name. Okay, yeah, he's got like five of them that are going to come along and carry like all the equipment. And I did feel bad for him every time I saw them heaving a, a big <laughs> a big uh, crate or and and all their their stuff. But uh, <laughs> that's probably period accurate as well. Yeah. But at some point, Jesse catches up with them. And I, I think the the these same these same bag headed natives go after Jesse. Or or maybe there's just some bad dudes that want Jesse. And uh she gets rescued by Quartermain and uh and, and so then we have our group. Yeah, we have our party, our our team of adventurers. This was a really cheap movie, you could tell, but they actually shot it on location. And every time, you know, there was this broad vista or they would show waterfalls or they would show, you know, mountains that go for miles and miles and miles without a single electric light in sight or or a road. Uh, I was just like, wow, whoever did the second unit photography on this was excellent <laughs> because you can't fake that kind of production yeah. value of actually shooting on location, especially on a cheap movie like this. Cause there are a couple of shots where they do fake it and you know, they're faking it, but yeah, every once in a while I'll be like, wow, that, that looks great. Yeah. And yeah, there, there's a big sequence of them just like walking and uh, hiking. And uh, I can't remember what happens, but eventually they get to some, tunnel that's cut through the mountain that has the booby traps yeah it was quartermain triggers a couple of the death traps and and then as they're going they they discover this along the the path as they're going through this canal or whatever there's this medallion this gold medallion embedded in the rock and of course swarma gets over there with his knife trying to dig the gold out of the rock and it triggers the rock to come out and then the ground beneath them starts to split into a trench and several of the or at least a couple of the guys servants or whatever that are with them they they fall down into the pit jesse almost falls down but uh, quartermain is able to help her james Earl drones tries to hit it with his hammer but he can't reach it and so quartermain has to pull out his pistol and shoot the medallion to get the the block to go back and it would close back up the path. And, I mean, like you said, it, you can tell that it's cheap, but I think it's effective and it, it works. And then, uh, then there's a, a long sequence where they're going down a river on these canoes and they run into some other natives and they get attacked at night. Oh yeah. At the beginning of the movie, <laughs> I had forgotten I, I was going to try and sneak it in there <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, we forgot to mention something that's super important <laughs> <laughs> yeah he buys this like undershirt of I don't know Kevlar is all I can think of but it obviously wasn't but something that 
protects your body. You know, it's impenetrable or whatever. And so at one point he gets, looks like he gets speared and it looks like he's dead and the natives are all excited. And of course, Jesse's all upset and everything. And, but then he comes out of it, you know, he's like, Hey, and he pulls up the spear and it hasn't hurt him at all. And uh, then they think he's a devil. And so they let them pass because they, they can't work against the devil or whatever. So um, that's that's one of the, the magic powers that that he seems to have. But we know, you know, what it's at. And that comes to play a, a couple time, a couple different times in the movie. I think those are the major roadblocks they ran into in getting to the city. But eventually they yeah, do. Well- we got to talk about this part where they go, <laughs> where they go into this mountain, right? Oh, because, oh yes, I know what you're talking about. Because yeah. it's the it's the biggest like action sequence of the whole movie, and <laughs> it's where the budget really, really shows. And what's interesting is that it really reminded me of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the end of that movie with like the mine car chase, because they do the exact same. What what would you call it? They use the same techniques at, that Spielberg did, where they have like miniatures, where they have um, them on a, a blue screen, and where they have puppets that are in the action. But whereas the Spielberg movie intercut over and over and over again so fast that you'd never guess you're looking at a miniature. You'd never guess you're looking at stand-ins. You'd never guess you're looking at a couple of people on a dry, on a, a non-moving set. And you'd never guess that they are puppets. But in this one, I was just like, holy <laughs> smoke, look at that. They've got puppets rowing the boats. And it's going extremely fast. Like like the background is is going by extremely fast, like unbelievably fast. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's just like a really badly processed shot where the light doesn't match, and you can tell they're not really there, and they're not moving. But like you said, the background is like very dangerous, and they go underground. To where the water is like boiling hot. <laughs> oh yeah, boy, I missed all that. Yeah, I'm glad you remembered. And there's like a a whirlpool in one scene, and I think it it eats up the remaining Ascaris. You know, this deadly whirlpool yep. of boiling hot water and stuff. And it it was stupid, but it was fun. And and I wonder did did your wife roll her eyes, or was just like, oh, this is quaint. Yeah, she she uh, mentioned especially when they were like speeding down through uh, to get to that pool or whatever. She's like, "This is really bad." I'm like, "Yes, she's right. It is. It was the kind. It was the level of technique that you would have had twenty years before this, not not 1980s stuff. Yeah, and eventually they uh, they hit ground and they're able to uh, get out and walk. And then they encounter these, they're, they're like snakes mixed with dragons, but they're all puppets. <laughs> and a worm? It's a hand puppets. Yeah. Like there's a guy's arm controlling each one of these. Uh, and they just, and I was watching it with my six-year-old nephew. And I was like, what are those? And he says, I don't know. And I said, well, if you had to guess, what would you say those are? And he's like, I I don't know. He They didn't look like snakes. They They... <laughs> 
<laughs> I guess they were just supposed to be like prehistoric creatures that have somehow survived in this environment. Yeah. But they were so silly looking and James Earl Jones will like hack them with his big axe. And I guess that's cool, yeah. but <laughs> it was it was hokey if you can use that word anymore. But you know, you have to pad this thing out with action somehow, I suppose. Yeah, no, I'm I'm glad you remembered all that because I I was going to skip right over it. No, it, well, it's fine. They 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 escape and only like the extras die, and so now it's Alan and Jesse and James Earl Jones and Swarma. That's that's all that's left, and they emerge from these tunnels, and there they there it is. They, in fact, there's a a like a yellow brick road. There is a a road of gold that goes off into the horizon to a, a, a city and they follow it. And like every single scene I thought in this city worked because it was a practical location. You could tell that it was all real and it was on location. It wasn't just in LA. And so you're able to believe a little bit more and, uh, early, early on, they said that there there was this legend of a lost city of gold that had a a lost white tribe. You know what I mean? And 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 for years and years and years, right. people believed that somewhere in the jungle, whether it was in South America or whether it was in Africa, there there would be a lost white civilization. And I don't think that that ever turned out to be true. But you know, in the seventeen hundreds, eighteen hundreds. People believed that, that that was out there because only a white civilization could have created such wondrous things. And you know what I mean? It's just <laughs> part of the way that people thought in those days. Of course. Yeah. Um, but, but it turns out that there are white people and, you know, Africans, dark skinned people living in harmony in this city of gold. Yeah, and I don't know how I, – I, I know this was loosely based on the novel titled Alan Quartermain. Which was a sequel to – King Solomon's Mine. Yeah. And so – but I don't know how – you know, I, I've, I've never read any, any of those novels. But yeah, so I'm sure some of this came from that, but it's probably very, very loosely based. There's There's one item I wanted to talk about when we get toward the end. But yeah, and then we find – oh, and then – so Alan meets up with his brother, Robeson, <laughs> and uh, he's all happy and, and just part of this community in this city. Now, did did you get the impression that Robeson had, like, settled down with a girl there and, and he, he, he wanted to spend the rest of his life there? Because I, I didn't know why he was there. Everybody dresses in, like, these white robes. It reminds me of, like, people's visions of what heaven will be like. Where everything is simple and and back to basics, and people live in harmony. But I guess that didn't turn out to be the case because there's a dark foreign element in the city, and and the brother Robeson explains that not long ago these outsiders came, and the the leader of the chief of the outsiders is uh, what was his name? It started with an A, Aegon or something like that. Yeah, you're right, A Aegon. Yeah, and Aegon. he has set himself up as this spiritual leader of the city. And I'm not really sure how. Maybe they 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 could have established that he's, you know, got modern weaponry and and none of the people in the city do. 
but he just somehow he set himself up as spiritual leader of the the city but he's he's corrupt and evil he's played by henry silva who only ever played bad guys what 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 else i looked him up but i i just i'd never recognized him from anything else but he he didn't look familiar to you not really and he was playing it way over the top as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah his his performance is turned up to 9.8 maybe 10 maybe 10.5 but he he's also using the people of the village for like human sacrifice you know what i mean he's like he's he's this corrupt religious leader that demands the gods uh, you know that that say that the gods have have given him full control, and uh, and yet there are these two sisters who are like the queens of the city of gold. Can can you say a little bit about the two sisters? Yeah, I mean they seem to be equal in power, at least in terms of from the natives' point of view, but they kind of cow to Aegon as well. But I think we we learned that one of the sisters, who's played by Cassandra Peterson, it, it, she, she you would would it be fair to say that she's a mistress of the dark? It, it could you could say that about her? Yes, <laughs> yes, she's evil. But I don't think she ever said a word in the whole movie. She didn't. I was waiting for her to do something or say something, but yeah, she played a really minor minor role. I thought she played up more as well. Uh, but I think the other sister who may have had something going on with Robeson was more gentle and benevolent and was trying to, uh, was looking for a way to go against her brother. And okay, so, so Aegon is, is the brother of the two Queens. I, yes, I believe that's, that's the case. Okay. Interesting. Or from what I, I remember like the, the only scene that like, borders on pg-13 in this whole movie is the human sacrifice scene <laughs> and what's weird is the set looked so much like temple of doom to me yeah that i thought could they have just like used that set after the 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 after steven spielberg's team was done in the way that like roger corman would be like hey let's shoot another movie on this set before we break down all the walls and stuff they have these poor natives and I, it it reminds you of Molaram doing the the thing where they they take the natives they they've tied them on a rope and they lower them into molten gold, and it turns them into human sized golden statues. And he explains at one point that it it was too much work to make golden statues, but this is much easier. And I. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it wasn't yeah. horribly graphic like Temple of Doom is. It's not gory. Nobody's ever going to say this should have been rated R or anything. But it still sucks to see a poor person dipped into this this gold, this molten gold, alive. Yeah, alive. And, uh, well, and maybe that's what he was playing. Because like, he had this huge smile on his face and he was kind of going... Ah! Maybe he was trying to channel Mola Ra or something like that. But what did you did you think of Temple of Doom when you watched those scenes? I did, and then like when they showed the 
the natives, you know, I don't know if they were mining or what they were doing, and they were getting whipped and everything. It looked just like it did uh, Temple of Doom. Yeah, with all this, this, yeah. Um, <laughs> Except they weren't children. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I can't remember what's going on during these scenes, but at some point, like all of those, I guess, hostile natives that they encountered before that thought that Quartermain was a devil have arrived and they're in league with Aegon. And I guess he's just going to allow them to come into the city and attack and kill all of the people because it will wipe out his enemies, which, you know, would include Quartermain and his brother and just anybody who would get in his way, whatever nefarious plan Aegon had. At some point, tell me when it happened, Swarma goes over to Aegon's side. Yeah, because so Aegon kind of recognizes the kind of guy that, that Swarma is. And he says, hey, I can give you all of this gold. I just need to know Quartermain's secrets. Because at one point, I think Quartermain gets stabbed in the city and he survives again. And that wows everybody. And so now Aegon feels like his power is diminishing and, and Quartermain is, is getting more notoriety or whatever. And so, yeah, he, he kind of convinces Swarma to tell him Quartermain's secrets. And I don't know if he... I don't think he tells him everything, but he does steal the, I don't know what you call it. The chain mail underwear. Yeah. Uh, and he also steals the pistol, right? Oh, right. Yeah. And then he, he ends up going back out with these, these guys, the tribe and, and everything. And there's this other guy that's part of the, the barbarians or whatever. Cause there's kind of, you got the, the local tribesmen, and then you have like these barbarian guys. And this one guy, he has this huge helmet on with horns, and he breaks a rock, you know, with his head and proves, you know, how strong he is. And he wants Quartermain to do the same thing. And, you know, of course, Quartermain doesn't want to do that, but he ends up instead using dynamite on a on a bench or a stone bench to break it apart. And it looks like he's doing it with his magic or whatever. And that was one of the, the scenes like we were talking about that you could tell that uh, Richard Chamberlain was having a lot of fun with that, you know, and, and pretending to be mystical and magical and all that kind of stuff. But he's also, you know, getting more influence over the people because of this. And eventually, I can't remember exactly what happens, but there's something, there was something that the good sister told them about. If you break this table that Aegon built or had built or had brought in or something that this is what proved his power. If you break it, then it will prove that you're better than him or whatever. And so he's out of dynamite, so he can't use that trick again. But I think he has James Earl Jones use his hammer <laughs> yes. to bust it up or, 
or he uses the hammer. I can't remember which, but no, no, he has James Earl Jones do it. But it it's so obviously like made of balsa wood when he when he cuts through it in one strike and it just falls apart. <laughs> and I thought, couldn't they put like dust on it or something like that so it looked like oh wow this thing cracked. I, I I guess I'm as Harrison Ford would say it ain't that kind of movie kid, uh, <laughs> but yeah I believe that when he breaks the the table the the good queen tells him what to say in the native language. Say Tanarea. It means no more sacrifice. Tanarea. And that causes a bunch of the natives to flee, and and they're no longer threats. But then, yeah, then this is where I get kind of, I can't remember everything, is at some point, you know, so they have Swarma, and, you know, they're going to come back and attack the city again to try to get uh, their power back. But I can't remember what the plan was or how, what they were going to try to do when they came back to the city. No, all I remember is that they've got like this great big lion carved uh, out of gold on the roof of of the palace, and they start to strike it right with with the the axe, and it makes lightning hit. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So yeah, they're facing off against the army that are that are coming. And then, yeah, somehow, and I don't know if the sister had knowledge of this or whatever. I, it was very confusing. But, yeah, Alan stands up on there with the and starts hitting it with the axe, and lightning comes out, and then all the gold starts to melt off the top of the city, and it falls down and, you know, kills the, the natives that are coming. And eventually, I think that that's how Aegon gets killed, as he gets dipped in the, the melting gold. Yeah, that that wasn't explained very well. We, my wife and I talked about it. We're like, "What's going on? What's he doing?" You know, it was almost like he had the hammer of Thor or something up there. Yeah, it's it became supernatural, and we hadn't had anything supernatural through the whole movie. Uh, but yeah, the the molten gold pours onto Henry, pours onto Aegon, and turns him into a a statue, and so it's. It's, uh, you know, cruel irony that these these things tend to happen to the bad guys. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. Did uh, Elvira try to do anything? I don't remember her doing anything in the movie. It's so weird because usually there's like a bad girl that the good girl can fight. And, and it's just it's so cookie cutter the way they do this. It's like, well, we need somebody for Jesse to fight. But I don't remember, like, Jesse sword fighting her or anything like that and defeating her. It could just be that once Aegon was gone, she she fled. Yeah, it could that could be it, too. But, yeah, so they're victorious or whatever, and then they're, everybody's happy. His brother comes out and the good sister is there. And, yeah, so I think that's that's pretty much the end of the movie. We don't go back or resolve anything they're just all happy in the in the city of gold i guess they like you said they were planning on a on making this a trilogy so maybe they would have followed up from there in the next movie but yeah a canon sort of fell apart around this time i think 
I think Alan Quartermain came out in 86. Wait, let's see. Oh, no, it says 87. And 87 was the year that uh, Superman Quest for Peace and Masters of the Universe came out, right? Which was like the one-two punch that buried Kenneth. Oh, okay. And so, yeah, I would imagine that their days of making mid-budget films like this were over. We've we've talked about canon films before, (laughs) and they were known for schlock. And I'm not sure if I'm using that word correctly, but like the movies that canon made tended to be cheap exploitation movies that were no good. But they had a built-in audience, and because they were so cheaply made, they would always make their money back. You know what I mean? And then Golan and Globus, these two owners of of the studio, got too big for their britches. And they said, let's make big movies. Let's become a real studio. And yeah, they made two or three. And all it took was Superman 4 bombing and Masters of the Universe bombing to bury them as a studio is like once you've spent $30 million instead of three on a movie and then $40 million instead of 10 on a movie and they both bomb, that's it. And I, I, I I know we've talked about those before. I don't know that we've talked about them on the the show, but both masters of universe and Superman four had big budgets and then Canon cheaped out as much as possible. And it shows in the on those movies. And audiences just, you know, wanted none of it. I, I remember when Superman 4 came out, because, you know, I was I was still the right age to want to see a, a Superman movie and just hearing just how bad it was. And I was like, well, how bad could it be? And and as a kid, you're like, oh, well, this isn't this isn't a real Superman movie. You know what I mean? It and the the Masters of the Universe <laughs> movie, yeah. like the first five minutes take place in Eternia, and then all the rest is like an eighties set on Earth, you know, low budget movie. And and they do go back to Eternia for like the last ten minutes or whatever. And, but those are the only two parts of the movie where it comes alive where it feels like anything and it's, you know, it's because of budgetary reasons It's because of these guys who were used to making schlock, trying to make a movie that will appeal to everybody. I'm not sure why uh, King Solomon's minds did well. And Alan Quartermain did poorly, uh, except for that. Maybe there were better Indiana Jones knockoffs that people could go to. You know what I mean? Something like Romancing the Stone was obviously made to cash in on the, like, you know, the Raiders phenomenon, but it was so good that it's like, well, why would you want to see a really badly done Indiana Jones knockoff? Yeah, because that was, that pretty, the Romancing the Stone was a pretty quality movie and, and the actors, acting was really good and it was a fun adventure. So, I mean, this was fun. Like I said, I, I mean, this definitely wasn't anything close to Romancing the Stone, but uh, I did enjoy the adventure of this a lot more than I did King Solomon's Mines. I, I, I just seemed to be more, I, I think the plot was more direct. It's like, hey, we're trying to get to the Lost City of Gold. Here we go. 
And, uh, and then once they got there, you know, there was intrigue there. It just, I don't know, it just seemed to flow better for me. And the, the sequences were set up a little bit better. <laughs> well, we won't go into the King Solomon's Mind stuff, but. Well, I think the first movie tried to take it a little bit more seriously. And every time uh, the budget hampered the film, you'd be like, oh, come on. Whereas this one, it was it was always lighter. And 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 you could tell that they were trying to be more of a fun adventure. That it's like, hey, you guys, die. except for dipping the people into the gold, you know, this this is something that you know, you're going to want to bring your kids to, and maybe that's why you liked it more. Maybe. Anyway, I thought it was pretty bad. But if there had been a third Alan Quartermain movie, I would have said, okay, well, two years from now or whenever, we'll we'll definitely revisit this. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm definitely not saying it was high quality, but just compared to the way I felt about this movie, compared to how I felt about King Solomon's Mind, I, I, I give it more, uh, more credit, I guess. Maybe it was James Earl Jones. <laughs> I don't know. He is great, uh, James Earl Jones, and but you know he, he, he hasn't been the lead in a lot of movies. He's always going to be the mentor character or the politician or you know the boss or the in some cases the bad guy uh and i i i i wonder if that's just because of of the way he looks he's he's not he's not leading man type in the same way that you that a denzel right, washington sure. is or will smith is or you know uh, richard roundtree or something like that uh he's always been a lot stockier and and uh but you know he does have a quality i do love James Earl Jones and yeah, it's uh I guess he, he's he's more of a Morgan Freeman type, you know. Morgan Freeman is always gonna be the the mentor or the teacher or the the boss, you know, kind of thing. The friend. No, I agree with you completely. I, I think, you know, just some you know, some actors just fall into that. I was looking at some of the other cast members. Uh Swarma looked kind of familiar to me. Looking through his filmography, he I remembered him from Mork and Mindy. You do okay, because yeah, my dad if he if my dad were alive, he would have been able to name like ten movies that Swarma did because he was a cowboy actor, and he would be in John John Wayne movies and you know that kind of thing. He 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 was always in the western movies. But what did he play on Mork and Mindy? He was like this kind of similar type character. He was like this like hippie spiritual guru kind of guy that befriended Mork and Mindy and was lived in their building or whatever and kind of, you know, became a recurring cast member. Mark, the man lied to you just as those crummy Venusians lied to me. I know you can't trust a man with four lips. All you get is double talk. <laughs> They promised me they were coming down and destroy the earth on Labor Day. They let me down. Bummer. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. It was then I realized that my faith had been misplaced, and I began my quest for truth. I tried Buddhism, Catholicism, Judaism, Punch and Judaism. <laughs> but nothing worked for me until 
I found him. Who? Mark. I worship O.J. Simpson. <laughs> and then I guess I, I was looking at Sharon Stone's filmography, and I guess I didn't. I I thought m- more of her, but you know she was in. Uh, her next movie after this was Police Academy 4, Citizens on Patrol. <laughs> <laughs> and then she was in Action Jackson. Now, did Action Jackson have Carl Weathers in it? Yeah, that was Carl Weathers. But, it, you know, it, it was kind of a another, I don't know if it was a low-budget comedy, but it was, you know, played for, for laughs more than more than the action, I think. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've seen that one. And then I remember from Total Recall, of course. Yeah, that that was where I first saw her. Yeah. Yeah. And then Basic Instinct, of course, was where she became the most famous. And she probably... became Sharon Stone, yeah, after that. Yeah. But I guess what, what sets canon, like, I guess, well, let me try to answer this question. Like, we talk a lot about Roger Corman, you know, and he was also known for making cheap movies as, you know, as cheap as he could. But... I, I think maybe that's where he differed was he never tried to be more. He knew what he could do and he knew what he wanted to do and he never tried to become more, you know, he, he didn't try to become a big budget person. He just enjoyed making movies and, and uh, working with people. Yeah. I did. Well, Corman was a lot less hands-on in his productions he would find these young and hungry filmmakers and he would say, you know, if you will do this movie for me, I'll let you produce something. I'll let you write something. I'll let you do the kind of movie that you want to do as long as it has a low budget. And, and so people like Ron Howard and James Cameron and, uh, you know, Joe Dante and uh, folks like that would get their start working at, for Roger Corman. And then eventually, you know, they would break out and, and become these these filmmakers that could do whatever they wanted. I feel like Golan and Globus, they they were much more hands on, and they'd be like, "Okay, you know, we need you to make a movie that's just like this, and you've got you've got a week to 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 make it, and it has to have six death scenes in it. It has to have nudity here and here, and when you." when you make a movie like that, it's really hard to break out and create something that, that people remember or something that, that gets you noticed. It's I'm I'm sure there are Canon films, filmmakers that went on to be good filmmakers, but it's a lot harder than the way uh, Corman did it. And uh, you know, there are, there are all sorts of people, you know, Oscar winning Directors. I mean, obviously, Cameron has Oscars and Ron Howard has Oscars. Jonathan Demme have Oscars that got their start making super low budget exploitation movies for for Corman. Uh, but I, I I can't remember if you ever saw something like Alligator or Piranha. Uh, those that were just Jaws knockoffs, but they were really good. You know? Yeah. In the in the seventies and eighties, when Corman would be like, "Okay, make a an alien ripoff," sometimes that there was a, there was talent there. Whereas I don't feel like on these Canon Films movies, I, maybe they were they were just too cheap. 
You know, they were just like they they had a week to make a movie, and and they couldn't shine. It's hard to say. It's just the the, the level. You know, it's like Roger Corman was a good filmmaker. If you look at those Poe movies, or even like Little Shop of Horrors, the first one, you'd be like, he made this in a week. He he actually had talent, <laughs> and I don't know that Golan and Globus did. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, they they thought more of themselves than than what they were, from what I can tell. No, yeah, I think we've said enough. I I love these the genre. What what, what would you call this? I, is like a treasure hunt kind of adventure movie? Yeah, I mean, you could say that the Pirates of the Caribbean movies are like that. Uh, but, but I'm, I'm thinking more of Indiana Jones or Tomb Raider or National Treasure. Yes. You were thinking the same thing. National Treasure and, and the mummy movies with, with, uh, what's his name with Brendan Fraser. They all yeah. have, I mean, a, that is a, a subgenre kind of thing. And I, I, I really like those. Uh, they they made one just the other year, uh, the the river rafting one, the the Disney. Oh, river cruise. Yeah, jungle cruise. I think it was called. And it's just yeah, they're they're fun. They, they made the one with Tom Holland and and Marky Mark last year, uh, which wasn't very good, but it's still that genre of swashbuckling adventure. Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. Or one that bears a similar title. But uh, was not as good as Uncharted was the the Lost City or whatever with uh, Sandra Bullock in it. <laughs> you know, I just saw that this year. Oh, really? Like two weeks, three weeks ago, or whatever. And and I the trailer was so funny, and I just I hated the movie, and I just I was surprised that I hated it so much because it had a really good cast. And and a a fun premise, <laughs> but yeah, it 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 was it was it could have been a remake of Romancing the Stone. It could have been, but it wasn't. <laughs> well, I'm just saying that the plots are so similar of her being, you know, the writer and all that. But anyway, yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah. All right, well, I guess we've opened the waters again to. <laughs> more outfield excursions episodes so thanks for joining us on this uh little adventure with alan quartermain if if you'd like to check out more of the stuff that's on the the patreon these episodes always come out on patreon before they come out here on the main feed and i don't release the most recent episode until this new episode comes out so this will come out on Patreon, and then the last Outfield Excursions episode that we did will come out to the to the rest of the world. So if you if you want to catch these early, head on over to patreon.com slash journey into and uh, check out the offerings there. And uh, Rish, you have a Patreon as well. What a uh, terrible thing to you. say to me. <laughs> Uh, that's over at uh, patreon.com slash Rish Outfield. And uh, there's lots of uh, good stories, Rish's stories and other stories that uh, he has over there. And just adventures of uh, toy collecting and selling and all that kind of stuff. So check that out. And uh, we'll be back here again, hopefully soon, 
with another uh, movie to talk about. And until then, I guess uh, be well and good night. <laughs> you were looking for a quote from the movie and you couldn't think of one, right? Uh, I couldn't think of one, yeah. <laughs> I can't either. <laughs> but uh, yeah, till, till we meet again, thank you. Good night. <laughs> good night. This episode of The Outfield Excursions is produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I have learned from my travels to the lost city of gold that if I chant Tanarea, which translates to Creative Commons in their language, it will cause a curse to come upon those that violate the Creative Commons license. So... If you try to sell this audio, or if you change the audio for your own twisted ways, or even if you don't let people know where the audio came from, so beware. But other than that, feel free to share this podcast with anyone and everyone. Alan Quarterman, the master of adventure, has teamed up with the most unlikely partner. Eric is about 6,000 miles that way. To pursue the dream of a lifetime. It's dangerous and it's crazy. And it's what I've got to do. Searching for the long-lost treasure of an ancient civilization. Guarded by a mad tyrant and his ruthless warriors. The odds are against them. And that's the way they like it. Richard Chamberlain, Sharon Stone, and James Earl Jones... In the adventure movie of the year, Alan Quartermain and the Lost City of Gold.
again, I don't know how... I, I, I know this was loosely based on the novel titled Alan Which Quartermain. was a sequel to, um, to uh, Hunt for Red October. No, it was a it was a sequel to King Solomon's Mind. <laughs> King Solomon's Mind. <laughs> Proof that only a fool questions the wisdom of Swarma. Proof that even a blind monkey sometimes finds a banana. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> 